Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The war on terror that the United States is now engaged in is unusual in many ways. One of those ways is that this war is being fought against a network that is spread out in many unsuspecting and obscure places. It is not being fought as many wars have been fought in the past directly against another country. Dr. John Arquilla is a professor of defense analysis and the co-director of the Center on Terrorism at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. In this program, we talk with Professor Arquilla about the fighting tactics employed by networks as opposed to countries, the threats they pose, and some of the war tactics used against these networks. We begin with Professor Arquilla describing what is different about this war compared to other wars. The most distinguishing factor today is that we're in the first great war between nations and networks. Our opponent doesn't have a home territory that we can threaten. They're distributed all over the world, including in this country. And so it's unlike any other conflict that's ever come before. Well, then, what is uh, our government to do? I think our first step is to stop behaving as though we're fighting another nation. This is not a war that can be won by occupying other countries. The military element uh, won't need all the heavy, expensive weapons we have, the main battle tanks, the aircraft carrier battle groups. What's needed instead is a very intensive special operations campaign by small numbers of troops sprinkled all over the world, in some respects imitating uh, the organizational form of al-Qaeda. Just as in every previous war, one military imitates what the other does. Unfortunately, we're trying to fight this war the way we have fought the wars of the last uh, 50 years or so. And so militarily, uh, we're still way behind uh, the enemy. Uh, on the other dimension of the war, which is uh, what they call this uh, war of ideas, we're also doing, I think, pretty badly. Our opponent has galvanized support across the Muslim world with the notion that their aim is to reduce the shadow of American power and that we're engaged in a clash of civilizations. And that's a powerful recruiting tool on the other side. On our part, we haven't yet articulated well the notion that we're fighting for a civilization for a civil society based on universal and liberal values. And episodes like Abu Ghraib and shock and awe bombing simply make it harder for us to get our story across. We have two different ways of presenting the story. One that we hear in the United States and in the Western or English-speaking world, and the other which is recited to the people in the Muslim world. And they're, they're quite opposed. How do you see the two coexisting? I think that our attempt to tell uh, a story to the American people is increasingly undermined by the information that's out there in the world. Uh, when things like Abu Ghraib become widely known or memos from Britain saying it's clear that in June 2002 war with Iraq was inevitable, it's very hard for the spinmeisters to continue to keep uh, the perception among the American people they want. And of course, trying to control perceptions around the world has uh, been a shaky enterprise from the very beginning. Uh, the other thing I'd say is that we've stubbed our toe in terms of uh, trying to 
sell democracy and our ideals the same way you, you would sell dog food. The war of ideas is not just about TV ads and propaganda. It's also about the actions you take in the world. And the very fact that 140,000 Americans are in Iraq makes it hard for us to compete in this war of ideas. The actions we take in the physical world determine very much how we're viewed in this war of ideas. How do you see that being adjusted then by the commander-in-chief who directs the military and by the Congress of the United States that funds it? Well, I think a well-informed public is the basis of a sound national security policy, and I'd like to see the level of debate in this country uh, rise above uh, red and blue left and right. Frankly, I'd like to redefine the political spectrum away from left and right and turn it around to up and down. We have to be interested in things that will work or won't work and stop doing the things uh, that, that don't work. Then we have to identify the goal of what it is we wish to achieve by working. Yeah, I think when we talk about something working or not working, let's uh, view something we can all agree on. We don't want a terror network to have nuclear weapons. If al-Qaeda has even one or two nuclear weapons, they're far more threatening than uh, Russia, which still has thousands of warheads, because there's, they don't have a country. They're a network. We can't retaliate against anything, and they can threaten us at will. So we can all agree that for our war aims to work out, we have to keep them from getting these weapons. Now the question is, how does that happen? We have to get away from red and blue here and say, well, we're going to stop it by invading Iraq. We're going here and, and there and uh, taking over with our forces, or we're going to transform countries into democracies. And we have to go a layer deeper and say, well, gee, there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, gee, if we turn Pakistan into a democracy today, uh, rabidly anti-American forces would be elected to control that country, and they would be in possession of nuclear weapons. It's that kind of debate that I, that I want to see, something that goes beyond the posturing, the speaking things to people that they already believe or want to hear, and instead forcing them to consider uh, possibilities that are a little darker, a little deeper. And by doing so and informing the public, I have a great confidence that the American people will support and drive their leaders to pursue the right policies. When you make uh, the allegations about the leaders of Pakistan being in power, or, or a change in leadership in Pakistan being in power, uh, and thus having nuclear weapons, do you believe that to be true? Well, Pakistan most certainly has nuclear weapons. They, they actually detonated a, a test uh, weapon, so we, we know they really do have these weapons. The sad fact, though, is that if there were a real democracy, we're talking about now an American grand strategy of democratizing the world. If you had democracy in Afghanistan, just let me give you a little statistic about this. George W. Bush's popularity in Pakistan today is about 7%. Osama bin Laden's popularity in that country is about 67%. So if you had full, free, and fair democratic elections, you would have uh, Islamist forces swept into office, and you'd have a country that's very, very anti-American uh, that would be in possession of nuclear weapons. Do you really want that? And, and so it seems to me we have to be very, very careful when we talk about spreading democracy here and there, which, by the way, I simply see this whole notion of democratization as a kinder, gentler version of regime change. What do you see as the roots of this anti-Americanism? I think anti-Americanism is sparked to a great extent by American policy. Bin Laden's war aim is to reduce the shadow of American power across the Muslim world, the occupation 
of uh, Muslim countries by uh, American forces, the control of resources, and of course the installation of uh, governments that are uh, generally highly authoritarian in nature and, in their view, anti-Islamic. When we look at what President Bush says, he says uh, the goal is to democratize the world. Do you think the goal is to make it a pro-American democracy or just to democratize? And if so, for whose benefit are we doing this? Personally, I think this effort to shift to democratization is a political expedient in in the wake of our war aims. To what end? uh, Well, in, in Iraq our stated war aims turned out to be hollow. Uh, There was no terrorist connection in Iraq, and there were no weapons of mass destruction. Uh, Now Iraq itself is a hothouse environment for the development of terrorists. A lot of al-Qaeda operatives go to uh, to, uh, Iraq, as well as back to Afghanistan, to train to fight Americans. They don't have to go all the way to America to fight us. They can find us uh, more more easily. So I, I see democratization as a kind of damage control strategy. However, it's a strand of thought in American foreign policy that goes back a long time, all the way to Woodrow Wilson, uh, to Ronald Reagan's doctrine of freeing other countries, and of course to what Bill Clinton was calling a decade ago democratic enlargement. So this is in the bloodstream of American foreign policy, but there's always been a reaction to it as well in the American body politics, saying that no, as as uh, Governor John Winthrop said in Colonial Massachusetts uh, over three centuries ago, we have to be a lamp unto the nations, a city, uh, a shining city on a hill, and lead by our example. And John Adams would say, "Do not go abroad in search of monsters. Uh, deal with deal with your own problems at home." And so we've had this tension, and this is yet another of those times. And I happen to fall into the camp of people who thinks. It's uh, both arrogance and utopian to try to remake the world in our image, although it's very clear we want to do so. In, in Iraq, for example, we really don't want the Shiites to have total control um, in a free election, which they would because they're 60% of the population. Because what would happen? In, in Iraq, if there were true democracy, we'd have created the kind of society we say we wanted, but it would be very closely aligned with Iran. And another good example of this is Algeria now, 14 years ago, held free and fair elections, and Islamists were uh, voted into power, and the United States and others just looked the other way and tacitly supported a military coup d'etat that brought an end to democracy there and, of course, ushered in a new period of insurgency. It's very hard to be consistent do we really want democracy in Saudi Arabia? They might they might stop selling us oil at the price we want, or or worse yet, might end up in a horrible civil war and disrupt the whole global economy. Well, I want to go back to the question of for whose benefit are we doing this, but I want to take a moment and say that on this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with John Arquilla, a professor of defense analysis and the co-director of the Center on Terrorism at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Professor Arquilla, again, for whose benefit do you believe that the United States government is pursuing the policy that it has in the Mideast? I think that those who believe that democracies do not go to war with each other believe that if they convert all the countries of the world to democracy, there will be no more war. This was an idea 
first advanced by Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, a couple of centuries ago in a wonderful essay called Eternal Peace. And he suggested that St. Augustine uh, didn't get it quite right. Augustine said that the world could only be changed if every individual were redeemed first. But if we do that... Your example of democracy in Pakistan earlier would certainly not inure to the benefit of the or the safety of the United States. Or, or the safety of the world. Uh, in fact, I, I think that Kant had it wrong, and, and many philosophers have suggested that, that Kant did have it wrong. But that's something that people believe. And uh, 20 years ago, an American scholar by the name of Michael Doyle uh, revitalized Kant's essay in uh, an article that was referred to as the democratic peace. And by the way, there's been a lot of debate in academia about that, and I fall into the camp of scholars who think that um, it's a, a, a very odd theory that is not borne out by the facts. And in fact, democracies are just as war-prone as other kinds of countries, and in fact, they have fought each other from time to time. This has led uh, some scholars to say, well, the United States wasn't really a democracy in 1812 when it fought against uh, Britain, uh, or when uh, Pakistan and India fought the Kargil War when Pakistan was still um, somewhat democratic. It hadn't been democratic long enough, and, and they uh, go back and forth. Uh, try, and, and, of course, they look at 1914 in Europe and say that, well, really, only Britain was a democracy then, not, not Germany, even though the Germans had an elected government with a constitutional monarchy. So they're uh, trying to redefine. But in, in fairness, uh, that is the view. These are high-minded people. They believe democracy will make things better. Uh, I think the, the most important rebuttal the American people need to hear today to that is, is that it is very hard to be consistent. If you can't be consistent and say, yes, democracy in places like Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and Algeria, if you can't say that, then the rest of the world looks at you and says, uh, this is classic real politique uh, dressed up in democratic clothing. Are we forgetting oil and the economic benefit and the structure, the underground pipe structure throughout the United States to fuel our modes of transportation that are dependent on oil? You know, I don't think that this particular administration ever lets oil get too far from its thoughts. Uh, they're always considering this. As we look today, there are uh, new pipelines being planned uh, to and through those areas in Central Asia where we now have troops. And, in fact, I think this new great game that's emerging, that's from Kipling's term for the 19th century competition in Central Asia between Britain and Russia, there's a new great game emerging. And oil lies at the heart of it, and it, it's what uh, causes the pulse of the global economy to beat. It will continue to do so, and as oil grows scarcer in the coming decades, the conflicts over its control will only grow sharper. So I, I think if, if Karl Marx were alive today, he would look at the terror war and at world politics today, and he would say, ah, oil, no surprise that Western nations went into Iraq uh, a lot of hundred billion barrels there. Of course, there. Of course, they're in there. And so, I think oil is something that is, uh, no pun intended, just beneath the surface of all this conflict. Professor John Arquilla, let's go back to something you said uh, earlier in our discussion today, and that's about a net war, and the fact that we're not fighting against a nation, but uh, we are fighting against uh, perhaps cells. But how do we proceed in trying to disable uh, the network? 
Al-Qaeda is made up of small cells distributed in over 60 countries around the world. They don't have any massed field armies. They don't have any aircraft carriers. How do you fight this? You fight it using the same organizational method. Uh, we have to use our own small cells and nodes to go after them. And what this means, of course, is that of that $1.25 billion we're spending every single day on the American military, very, very little of it is going for the kinds of capabilities we need to fight. Remember, the Taliban were toppled from power by only 300 American commandos uh, on the ground. That was an example of organizing the way the enemy does in order to defeat them. The other examples, a, a lot I can't talk about, but what I can say is that uh, because it was written up in The New Yorker, a small American cell was working in Saharan Africa uh, with uh, what we call some surrogate forces, some friendly indigenous people, to track down and destroy two full terrorist groups, the uh, armed Islamic group and uh, a group called Alpara, um, several months back. And that's a, a tremendous success that people hear uh, nothing about. Major attacks were preempted in uh, Singapore against American interests. A speedboat bombing campaign against uh, oil tankers in the Strait of Gibraltar was preempted. These are the true campaigns of uh, a net war, a war against a network. We built our own network, and to some extent, it's functioning reasonably well with others. Among those who are our closest allies in this net war have been the Syrians, by the way, uh, who gave us tremendous information on a couple of occasions, uh, once allowing us to preempt an attack on the Navy's 5th Fleet headquarters in Bahrain. Unfortunately, all of our anti-Syrian rhetoric led them to speak out publicly recently to say that they were going to end their cooperation with us. Now, that's not a way to build a network. You don't want people shutting down their nodes in the network. You want to be building more. And so we have to get a little bit better at this. But we are trying to wage a net war. And, in fact, the Secretary of Defense is going around using that term now. So it's a healthy sign. When you say there are some things that you cannot talk about, what limits you? Uh, classification. I, I can talk about things that have been mentioned in the public record. A lot of this war, this war is a lot like an iceberg. Two-thirds of it is below the surface, and you, and you can't see it. And in small actions in many places, we don't want to tip the enemy off as to what we know exactly and where we are. This isn't the war that the military has prepared for for decades, a massive armor-on-armor -armor conflict. Those are gone, and, and keeping spending for that kind of war and waiting for a war like that is akin to keeping the landing lights on for Amelia Earhart. She's not coming in, and that kind of war isn't going to arrive. Let's talk about prejudice and promoting prejudice. Do you find in the framing or the language that is used uh, by the proponents of the war in Iraq and talking about Islamists and uh, various forms of the Muslim religion as promoting a prejudice or a, a prejudged attitude towards people of that faith? I think that our administration has gone out of its way to try to differentiate between what they consider to be religious uh, zealots and fanatics in the Muslim world and those who practice uh, one of the great uh, religious traditions of the world. They have tried very, very hard to make that distinction. Of course, it's a bit unseemly for uh, Western uh, Christians to be uh, pronouncing who is a fanatic and, and who is not. We, we really need to have others in the Muslim world speaking uh, with a more unified and a louder voice on that issue. And all I can say, I, I think uh, 
the writer uh, Hilaire Belloc once said that all wars are religious in nature, and uh, there's probably a, a bit of truth in, in what he said, and, and I think the best we can do is to avoid um, having a sense of religious uh, zealotry driving our own uh, military strategy and and policy. And uh, when, when I hear the commander-in-chief saying things along the lines of, well, it's uh, God's will that everyone should be free, and so we're going to democratize the world, uh, that sounds like it has a bit of the crusading spirit to it. And so I think we need to be uh, very careful about being respectful of Islam, but also careful about avoiding our own excesses. And in fact, the crusade word was used very early, the C word was used before our attack on Afghanistan, and uh, that was uh, quickly, quickly deleted, and we don't use terminology like that anymore. So there's a great sensitivity in this area. Although the term crusade is something that promotes zealotry among the, the greater American community, as did the concept of weapons of mass destruction. Um, and as you've said, and, and we all know, there were none in Iraq. How do we then know when our government or our president is telling us the truth? I think the biggest problem we have today is knowing the truth about a war that's so shadowy in nature when the people at the very highest level of authority in this country uh, don't know a whole lot. And I, I think, to be fair to uh, President Bush, he may not have known whether there were weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq. What he, what he did know for sure is that there was a great deal of uh, difference of opinion about that. And, and I think it is incumbent in our society on the commander-in-chief and all who serve him to be as open as they possibly can be uh, with the American public. And uh, this, this debate about whether there were weapons of mass destruction should indeed have been made public. And, and frankly, I, I hold Colin Powell to a great degree responsible for this. He went to the U.N. He, we know he's told us he had doubts about this, serious doubts, but he decided to be, quote, a good soldier and go to the U.N. and make the case on very shaky evidence. Colin Powell was probably the one man in this country who could have spoke to the public and said, folks, we just don't know. Maybe we should do some more diplomacy here, more inspections. And the war wouldn't have happened if he'd made that choice. But, but that presumes that he can act independently of his boss, the president, the commander-in-chief. Of course he could have. Now, he may have been fired the next day, but it takes somebody willing to put their job on the line to do the right thing. That's what troubles me most about public servants today. There seems to be this premium on loyalty uh, to the team or the boss as opposed to a loyalty to the American people when there might be some conflict between the two. And I think there is a higher calling in public service. One of the reasons uh, that I write as much as I possibly can and, and speak to public audiences a fair amount is I feel the public has a right to know as well as a need to know in a, in a conflict like this. And, and I think that that's something that uh, needs to become the highest ideal of, of public service. And we have in the case of Colin Powell, an exemplary public servant throughout his entire life, and at the culminating moment, he could have used all that goodwill and all his reputation to force a more circumspect view of Iraq and chose not to do so. And the wake of that, of course, is a few thousand American dead and many more thousand wounded, $300 billion spent, and, of course, tens of thousands of innocent Iraqis killed, and an American image in the world that has suffered almost irretrievably. 
those are huge costs. Now, weigh the cost of one man perhaps being fired as a cabinet member. Hell, people get fired in the cabinet for all sorts of things. How about doing it for the greatest possible good? Do you anticipate that there would ever be an apology to Iraq? Oh, I, I don't suppose that American politicians of either uh, stripe can apologize for anything anymore or admit they've made mistakes anymore. Well, we uh, saw one just recently in the United States Senate to uh, black people in America who have been lynched. Yeah, that, and that's after 80 years, I, I think, after uh, Southern senators were filibustering against it. I, I, I think the idea of apology is a wonderful thing, and it should be done when mistakes uh, have been made. I don't see it as very likely. Maybe we'll do such things at, at home on occasion. I hardly see it as likely on the world stage, although I believe it's a wonderful idea. Well, Dr. John Arquilla, Professor of Defense Analysis and the co-director of the Center on Terrorism at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious and ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read recently. I came back to Rudyard Kipling's Kim recently. I hadn't read it in about 40 years, and I came back and read it again because I remembered that Kipling had been the person to come up with the idea of the great game, this cold war between Britain and Russia in uh, Central Asia during the uh, late 19th century. And I reread this novel, and what I, what came to mind was, gee, both of these sides have organized networks to gather intelligence about each other. They were arming tribes on either side in, in their interests, and the war was being fought secretly by small numbers on, on either side. And what occurred to me is how very much like the period we're in now this story, Kim, is. And I'd like uh, very much uh, for all of our soldiers serving uh, over in that part of the world to be reading this. In fact, maybe if, if Oprah does one of these citywide uh, reading things, hey, Oprah, have them read Kim the next time. If you want to understand the conflict we're in today, go back to Kipling. And maybe some of those soldiers will do what you suggested uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell should have done. Indeed, maybe they will. Professor John Arquilla, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. My pleasure, Barry. Thank you so much. Dr. John Arquilla is a professor of defense analysis and the co-director of the Center on Terrorism at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. The book that Dr. Arquilla recommends is Kim by Rudyard Kipling. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. 
I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.